it was kind of a lost cause. I mean, I, I had been watching a more reasonable person would have shut Denard down years before that point. Uh, but I just kept, you know, I'm stubborn. I don't like to admit defeat. Um, and so I was just hanging on and was so sure we could figure something out. And we're just going to keep fighting for it. But by that point, you know, it looked like, look, we're going down. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, By All Means. If you've ever enjoyed a craft cocktail in one of Minnesota's many cool distilleries, you have Chris and Chanel Montana to thank. They were pioneers of the micro-distillery movement in Minneapolis when they opened Dunord Craft Spirits in 2013. Dunord got labeled the first black-owned distillery in the nation, a distinction we'll talk to Chris about. It's not an easy business, even with national attention. And right as Dunord was finally hitting its groove in 2020, the pandemic nearly put the distillery out of business, and the riots that followed the murder of George Floyd nearly burned what was left of Dunord to the ground. Through it all, Chris, his wife, his business team put community first. They made hand sanitizer for frontline workers. They started a food bank in their warehouse to feed neighbors. They donated more than $600,000 to other businesses hard hit by the civil unrest. Finally, the good is coming around. Dunord recently signed a national distribution deal with Delta Airlines, signaling brighter days ahead for the brand. And if you think that's the against all odds story, you've really got to understand where Chris came from. I grew up, I was originally, I was born in Indiana, but I moved to to Minneapolis um, when I was eight. And so I got to Minneapolis in the early 90s. And yeah, I mean, we we, we didn't, uh, suffice to say, don't come from money. So uh, we moved every year. You know, you always move to wherever the rent's cheapest. Uh, so I've lived in Northeast, Southeast, South, uh, I've lived all over, um, and technically also in St. Paul a couple times. And so, yeah, as a, as a kid, I kind of got a good survey of the area. I went to a new school every other year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it wasn't a very stable situation, but in many ways, it's like most people, I think you get to whatever the end of the road, or for me, I suppose I'm in the middle of the road, middle age. Uh, you think, well, I don't know that I would change it. And I don't think that I would because it, I got a really good overview of not just you know, the Twin Cities, but also how a lot of different people lived. Mm-hmm. Um, you had a couple of lucky breaks or things that happened along the way when you, I mean, you had some some unfortunate things that happened with your own family. And then can you talk about the the family that adopted you? Yeah, so I had, you know, and I, my my biological mother is still in the Twin Cities, so far as I know, and you know, I I don't have anything, I don't have anything negative to say about her. I'll only say that, uh, you know, she didn't have an easy road either, and uh, had her own problems to deal with, and and you know, me on top of that was was too much, and so suffice to say, you know, I ended up in, you know, in high school. Uh, for a brief period of time, just 
kind of out on my own and, and couch surfing. And, you know, I suppose you can call that technically homeless. I, you know, when I, that, that term evokes something different, I think for most people living out on the street and I was never that, mm-hmm. uh, but, but yeah, it was, it was a very uncertain, uncertain situation. You know, if you had asked me at that time, and I remember having that, that internal monologue, I mean, I had no expectation that I would see my twenties. Hmm. Uh, but you know, at, at that point, you're just trying to, to get, get by and get along. And I had a, a good friend of mine uh, who's a couple of years younger than me. And it just happened to be that in the course of couch surfing, it, you know, as far as anyone knew, it was just a sleepover. Right. Um, and so I was at his place and, and his parents asked, you know, well, when do you got to go? And I was like, I don't know, I got to go anytime. Like I have no place to go. And, and that, that, that interaction, um, that friend is now my little brother. Hmm. Uh, and that interaction was with my parents, um, uh, David and Stephanie Oski, and and they adopted me, brought me in, and you know when I speak of my parents, that's who I'm I'm speaking of, um, and I love them to death. And without without them, and truthfully, I I feel like I am an example of a lot of people doing good things for me, um, and it's the only reason why I'm here. So uh, without them, yeah. Um, I certainly wouldn't be here today. I, I wouldn't be here as a business owner, that's for sure. Uh, but doing anything else for that matter, yeah. the future looks that great. That's that so time. amazing. So, so great. Um, so d- did they um, talk to you, talk to you about the future? Did you start thinking about what you wanted to, to do and school and work? And how did that all evolve for you? You know, not really. You, you know, to put, they had a tough job. Right. Uh, the Chris Montana of, you know, 13, 14 was not an easy kid. Right. Um, I had a, an independent streak that bordered on pathology. I didn't, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't let people really touch me at that point. You know, you couldn't hug me. You couldn't do anything. Like I, I had a lot of things that I had to work through. And, um, so really the first four or five years was probably more of, of this, odd adaptive therapy process whereby, you know, I was being convinced that I was a, you know, valuable individual and that, you know, these human connections were worthwhile. Mm -hmm. So I think they had their hands full with that. Um, Them and really my my, teachers. It's why to this day, teachers are a a big, you know, I I hold them up above any other profession uh, because I also had teachers who kind of recognize that I might not be in the greatest of spots and, and invested in me and invested time in me. And, uh, one of them ended up on the bottle of one of our spirits. Right. But, um, you know, it was, I think that was their job. The idea of even, you know, what's going to come next. Uh, my dad would say he wanted, you know, he thought that I should go to college and then I could go to college. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, at the time, way too distant for me to even process you know i, I kind of took the van wilder approach to college i think it technically took me nine years <laughs> uh, but that's because I, I started at the u and wasn't very focused mostly enjoyed every other advantage of going to the <laughs> u you know mostly on weekends uh but I finished at the University of D.C., which is an HBCU in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in between there, there was a lot of life. I mean, in between there, I, you know, I, I worked for uh, Keith Ellison. I worked for Wellstone Action as a, you know, I, I got I kind of followed more passions. 
Um, and it was, it was running into a couple of brick walls later that got me, got it in my head. You probably should go finish your bachelor's degree and then go on and do law school. So did you think uh, about politics, about going into politics? You know, I, the, in, yes, I did. Um, and if you would have talked to me in, you know, the early two thousands, um, really post the Wellstone crash, Mm -hmm. um, you know, yeah, I thought that, I thought that that would be something I'd, I'd want to do. Now, uh, not just having worked in Congress, but also just growing up a little bit and seeing how things are done, um, I am more convinced than ever that the least effective way to <laughs> change anything is to go be a candidate. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think that, uh, you know, business has a lot of power to do a lot of things, mm-hmm. and it's not always used the way it could be. And I think that that's the best place for me. So I thought that the, you know, if I was going to have a business of my own, I had other reasons as growing up, I kind of had this idea that I should try to own a business at some point that kind of started in high school. Um, But, you know, I I thought maybe a brewery would be a way to go. But at the time, there were so many breweries, Mm -hmm. you know, and and now, of course, there's so many more. But I thought I was like, oh, this market must be saturated. And on top of that, and I do not mean to you know, disparage anybody who is brewing beer at that particular time, maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago. But we seem to be in this phase of just not necessarily trying to be good at any one thing, but trying to be different than everyone else. And so it's, you know, it's the, the, the I liken it to, you know, I want to go to a restaurant that makes a really good burger mm-hmm. because if they're really good, everyone can make a burger. Right. So if you've got a really good one, it means that the, you're doing the basics well. You're you're checking all the boxes. But I don't want to go to the place that's renowned for having a peanut butter and jelly burger. Right. <laughs> you don't. It's not about creating your own category and then saying I'm the best in that category because there's no one else to measure me against. Right. Right. And I felt like that's what beer was doing. Beers were um, they were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You could only drink one of them, and then you were knee walking drunk. You know, you they, how many hops? How much malt? How much can we jam into this poor little bottle or can? And it it just wasn't an enjoyable. It it seemed almost like a badge of honor to fight your way through some of these things, and people seem to like that. Mm-hmm. It's like and, the state fair approach to to beers. Yeah, it's got to like be quirky and different. Yeah, top. yeah, exactly. And I, I didn't want to do that. You know, mm-hmm. I I liked beer it doesn't sit with me as well now but i like beer and i liked classic styles we've been making beer for so long you know and and i so i didn't want to open up a brewery that nobody wanted to go to and i had a buddy in law school my buddy vladi and he said i would always talk about this brewery i mean he and i brewed together once he hates that experience but i you know (laughs) we're very different uh, brewers, you know, I'm more science, he's more magic, and he didn't like the interaction. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, he said, you got to get off this brewery thing, you got to think about distilleries, because what no one had been paying attention to, we always talk about the Surly Bill, the Surly Bill, um, and we think about it in terms of beer. But prior to the, you know, so called Surly Bill, there was no definition, there was no legal definition for micro distillery. Mm-hmm. That was slipped into that bill. And so previous to that point, you know, if you're in 2010, a distillery is a distillery. And so Phillips, right, and, and Glacial Grains, like these are these are large operations that operate out of Minnesota, um, and the, they pay a licensing fee of $30,000 a year. So if you wanted to start a micro distillery, you'd pay 30 k too. 
well, next door in Wisconsin, the fee was six hundred dollars. Wow. Right. Um, and so obviously no one started in Minnesota. That's why Minnesota was so far behind the rest of the country when mm-hmm. we started up. But that Sterling bill had changed that. But we still didn't have the distilleries still weren't popping up. And he had this idea, which I thought was crazy. But within two weeks, I was already writing the business plan and trying to convince Chanel, my wife, to go along with it. I'm curious, though, the, your legal background, how much did that help you understand and see the opportunity perhaps before others did? Well, I think that it did help. Truthfully, my my legal education uh, and at the time I was working at Fredrickson and Byron, which is a great firm, um, that played more into getting at least a few people to take me seriously. Hmm. And I wish that that weren't true, but I think that that's that's where the most of the value was. It also helped. Uh, we had we knew we had some some hurdles to climb. We didn't have any money. Um, we had less than ten percent of what everyone said you needed for the cheapest distillery. Um, Which was and, what? What what did they tell you you needed to start? Uh, basically, three quarters of a million dollars okay. um, to uh, to a million bucks, and we had sixty thousand. That we got from a community development organization, Seward Redesign, uh, alone. And we knew that for us to survive, we would need some legislative changes, hmm. right? At that time, a cocktail room was not legal. Um, and really, neither was anything else. You couldn't, you couldn't sell a bottle. It was an old school model, just three tier. Um, and we, we're the producer, so we have to sell to a distributor. The distributor will sell to the retailer, and, and that's it, right? And those margins work for big operations, but not for small ones. And so we knew that we would have to get in and and change some of that thing, some of those laws. So that's really where I think Chanel and I saw our opportunity. It was a gamble, but she works in government affairs, or at least did at that point. She's a master's in public policy. I was coming off of you know working in, in Congress, and and so we had an idea of how to get some laws changed. And so that was. That that was kind of the ace we had in the hole. And it wasn't just for us, obviously, it was for everyone else. And once we did get those laws changed, which people forget this, but Chanel, hmm. Chanel Montana, was the first president of the Distillers Guild. And she's the one who got that ushered through. Um, so, you know, I not to give her all the credit, there are other people there too, but, you know, my wife's kind of great. Um, <laughs> and if you like going to cocktail rooms, you should thank her at some point. Cheer, um, cheers but, to her for sure. Um, yeah. How long did it take to do that, to accomplish that? A while we didn't. So the the we opened the first cocktail room, but it opened in it was January 9th of 2015. We started the company in March of 2013, and we were working right away mm-hmm. on getting the law changed. Uh, so it, it took some time, but in the in the grand scheme of Minnesota liquor laws, it's really quick. And all this time while you were working on all that and starting up, were you working as a lawyer? Were you at the firm? Yeah, I started. I was doing. I was doing double duty, um, and so was Chanel, for that matter. Um, you know, she had her job during the day working on renewable energy development, and I was, you know, lawyer Chris during the day and distiller at night. Um, and just to keep things interesting, because we like it that way, we also had a newborn baby. Of course. Uh, and so, yeah. So you could say she was working triple duty, and eventually it became a bit too much for, for you know, all of us. I mean, she had to back out of the business. And I had to choose mm-hmm. between, am I going to follow this legal career or am I going to do this business? And um, 
you know, I chose to do the business. It sounds like you had to make that choice pretty early before you were guaranteed that this was going to be a success. How scary was that? Oh, it was terrifying. But believe it or not, that was kind of the point. As, as when I was doing both, um, one, I don't think you can really be good at both, right? If, if you're going to be a, you know, a successful litigator, uh, you're not going to do it with 50% of your capacity. You're going to do it with probably about 120% of your capacity. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to start a business from nothing and you're undercapitalized, uh, your sweat equity and, you know, your time, it, it, that's where you have to invest it. You can't have one foot in. But I had this, I always had this ability to, to kind of say, well, if the business doesn't work out, I'll just do the law thing. Right. And, it's a good fallback. It's a good fallback. But that safety net kept me from taking the kind of risks and kind of really going hard at the business. And so my theory was that if I remove the safety net, then, and I was all in on, and this is where some of the, the hubris comes in, right? It was like, if I'm all in on this business, then I'll just make it work. Mm -hmm. And it's not a great plan, right? There really was like that, that one sentence is essentially the plan, right? Mm -hmm. There wasn't anything else behind it. I didn't have any reason to believe that was going to work, but that was the thought. So you, you have the idea, you've got the laws passed, you've got a little bit of money, not enough money by any stretch. How did you start? How, how did you begin to, to build Dunord? I did a lot of reading. Um, I think if you can survive law school, you can make your way through some some pretty dry books. Um, and again, the science is what's interesting here. And so if you know you want to jump into, if you already know the brewing science piece of it, and I and I knew enough of it, you know, um, and then it just gets to the physics um, of distilling mm -hmm. and understanding that. And this is another one of those things where you look back and say, well, would I have done it differently? And the real answer is yes, but one of the advantages of doing it the way that I did is there was no, not only was there no safety net as far as me going to another career, we didn't have money to pay anyone to help us answer any questions, <laughs> right? So when we bought, we bought some equipment from a guy we knew just enough to be dangerous, right? So it was not good equipment. Uh, it got the job done, but it was massively inefficient. We had lots of problems, but we didn't have anyone to call. You know, there was no consultant or no manufacturer that we could call to say, hey, we're having this issue. The only way that, that we could solve it was to understand it at a basic level ourselves. And so that meant a lot of research, a lot of you know, kind of the dry academic side of things to just understand what exactly is happening in this process. If I'm getting this flavor, why would that happen or why might that happen? Mm -hmm. Right. You know, and that to me is soul food. Like I. I enjoy that and I enjoy knowing those kinds of things. And so I think that that ended up being a piece that kept me going with it. I think if we would have had all those answers up front, it wouldn't have been as much fun. Panther was the first distillery, but then the next wave of distilleries was Denord, um, uh, Beecre in Duluth, far north in Halleck, Minnesota, mm -hmm. and Eleven Wells, right, in, in St. Paul. And so we were all trying to figure it out at the same time, but we all had very different. Uh, situations, right? Um, and yeah, so we we were all. I mean, we that was your distillers guild. We talked all the time, um, and you know, to the extent that you had this issue or that, you kind of bounced off of each other. But we didn't have there. There was no. I didn't feel, and I don't think anybody else felt that we were in some kind of competition for, 
you know, this finite little bit of craft business that was going to be out there. I mean, I was invested in, you know, Joel and Emily in, in Vicre. I wanted them to do well and they wanted me to do well. Mm -hmm. So I think that part of it was, it would have been a lot harder to start up five years later. Hmm. Right. But what a lot of companies were waiting for, because of the model that I've described here of, you know, you've got to just sell to a distributor and then that distributor is going to sell it on and all those markups. I mean, what you see on the shelf, less than half of that went to the producer and they had to pay for everything to make it. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not a great model. And so what other businesses were waiting for is they were waiting for the cocktail room. And so once the cocktail room was passed, then you start to see this, the second wave, which includes Tattersall you know, in those businesses that would come in. Mm -hmm. So up until then, it, you know, it was a pretty small sandbox. And, and for those who aren't as familiar with this whole business model, the, the cocktail room allows you to sell direct. And so you don't have the, the middleman and you're able, the producer is able to make more. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And we got the cocktail room. We later got bottle sales. But if, if you visited a cocktail room, you know that it's not real bottle sales. You can only sell half of a bottle per person per day, um, which, as it happens, is the most restrictive one of those laws that exists in the country. Um, but it's better than none. How quickly after that did things really get rolling? When 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 did you start to make money? Um, last year. <laughs> Seriously. Right? Yeah, that's that's not a joke. I mean, we so it kind of took off like a rocket. And, and the reason for that, or at least part of the reason, obviously, you know, it was a good product, but it, we, we went from having no accounts to more than 400 and we had no capacity to handle that. We had no capacity. I mean, I was the sales guy. I was the janitor. I was the distiller. I was the bookkeeper. I mean, I was, there's, we couldn't handle that. Mm -hmm. And not necessarily in terms of production, we can handle the production side of it, but it's not enough to just sell to someone. You need to be, a, you need to help them sell in this industry. So that means being physically present in their stores, doing tastings, all that. We couldn't do any of that. Um, and we also knew that a big part of the reason why we got out of the gate quickly is because we were the only one. Mm -hmm. right? There was only one craft distilled vodka in Minnesota at that point, and it was ours. So, you know, we, we had this amazing start. And then we just watched it erode from there. Hmm. And what kind of bailed us out was then later we would get the cocktail room going. And then the cocktail room went crazy. Um, but it was the only cocktail room in the Twin Cities. Of course it went crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, but then new ones came in and better capitalized businesses came in, could look at what we did and say, yeah, I can do that better. And they were uh. right. Right. Yeah. And so they could come in, they could make a, a much, you know, broader experience, offer many more spirits, you know, nicer finishes. I mean, our cocktail room was built by me. Mm -hmm. I'm not a carpenter. Right. The barnwood, that's not like we went out and bought barnwood. We went to one of Chanel's, like one of the barns that their family has and just ripped wood off and then drove it in and tacked it up all around, you know, for that aesthetic. I mean, it, it was a very DIY setup. Yeah. Know? So people came in, they did it better, and we've lost, you know, we lost that energy. That's got to be so hard and frustrating when you know that you're the pioneer, you're the trailblazer, you made it possible for all of these brands that came after you, and then they stole some of the thunder. How do you, how do you go on from that? Um, you know, I don't think I was frustrated at any of them. I mean, I, I appreciated what they were doing, and I, I wanted to see it done. I mean, I had no illusions that 
that what we were offering was going to be the top of the pile. At that point, we had two spirits. So you could come in, you could get a vodka drink or a gin drink, and that was those were your only options. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I, I mean, we fully expected that that we were going to be eclipsed as far as like the, the premier cocktail room. We knew that was coming. Um, so it wasn't so much that I was frustrated or upset with anybody else. I wish them all the success and I continue to. It was more we were we were falling into this 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 hole where we couldn't figure out how to get out of it. Right. We had we didn't have enough money to invest to get the kind of equipment that we would need to really be competitive with the new players and on the scene. Um, our business was trending downwards. Hmm. And so we weren't exactly the most attractive thing to any funders at that time, right? Who wants to jump onto a sinking ship, particularly when there isn't a base of knowledge. I mean, most people still didn't even know that craft distilleries were a thing in Minnesota. Hmm. At mm-hmm. time. Um, and so we were, we spent years trying to figure our way out of it and, you know, went through a whole bunch of different possibilities and scenarios working with different developers. Maybe we need to move, maybe we need to focus on this or that and nothing really came to be. So the last such, you know, move was we had decided that we were going to contract and that we were going to focus on our cocktail room. And Mm. so this was 2019. We invested in um, setting up basically a restaurant with Eat for Equity, which is a nonprofit. And they were going to bring in um, BIPOC chefs and do kind of a rotating menu at Denord. We had never had food at Denord. And so we thought, well, if we have food, you know, we're going to expand some of the spirits that we make. That's going to be the thing. We're going to focus on being this restaurant. So we started spending and building and doing everything that we could, just burning cash to get to that opening date, which was the end of March, 2020. No. <laughs> and March 14th, yeah. 2020, the whole thing got shut down. Oh my and gosh. So what little cash we had, we had burned trying to get this restaurant concept open and then it all evaporated. How can you even quantify how that felt? Well, I just figured it was the end. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, why, why wouldn't it be? We didn't have any money in the bank. We, you know, I, I think Denord had about 15 grand left at that point. And, you know, we're not making that much. We, we never had, I mean, 60% of our revenue came from the cocktail room. So there was no way that we were going to be able to just on wholesale alone, just within the state of Minnesota with, there was still nobody working. Well, no, by then we had one person working. So mm-hmm. we, we just weren't moving the needle. We, and we knew that. So. But then pretty quickly, as we were all stuck at home, we all started drinking. We all started <laughs> going to the liquor store, stocking up. And, and as we know now, I mean, there was a huge spike in store sales. Did you benefit from that at all? Uh, well, our story pretty much mirrors the industry in, on the micro side. Okay. So a lot of folks in the first month or the first couple of weeks of COVID, when everyone was suddenly home, uh, saw a big bump. And then for almost everyone, it went away. Hmm. And because what, what we got replaced with at the very beginning, when people are like, yeah, let's go buy some booze. We're going to be stuck at home. Let's do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, then they became a little more cash conscious, right? And micro distilleries don't sell cheap products, right? Mm-hmm. They're expensive. So they had what 
you know, the macro, the larger legacy folks, they saw a big bump right after that. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's, and they, and it stayed that way. So most, most craft distilleries uh, got just hammered uh, through, (laughs) no pun intended, uh, through the, uh, through the pandemic. Not the good kind either. right? Yeah. Not the good kind. (laughs) And a big part of that is who are our best customers? Restaurants. Yeah. Right. And and they, that's how we educate people on a new product. When the restaurant that people like carries our stuff, that's an endorsement. And when we're on that menu, that's how people find out about us. We can't pay for advertising, you know, TV, all that other stuff that the other guys can. Well, when that went away, I mean, that's that's kind of the game, right? So what did you do? Did you just keep limping along? Did Were you able to keep manufacturing? Did you even have the demand and orders to, to do so, to keep bottling? Um, we, I mean, we bottled in a very token way for what we had. But, I mean, we, we had, uh, again, this is... And this is why I tell people it's like don't don't follow in the footsteps of Denord Craft Spirits because everything had to go right for Denord to exist today. Two weeks before we shut down, and we had voluntarily shut down because our staff said they didn't feel safe, but then the governor took care of it for everybody two days later. Two weeks though, before that, we had started to manufacture on a very small scale hand sanitizer. But we didn't manufacture it for anyone else. We were making it for ourselves so that way our bartenders in the cocktail room would have hand sanitizer that they could then put on the tables people could use. And it was really just an internal thing, right? This is very early in the pandemic. We didn't really know what was going on, but we knew that that something was was coming, right? And so we were just making the step. So we had started in a very small way to do hand sanitizer. When we shut down, the thought was, well, that's the end. And so the alcohol that we have is probably never going to be sold because we won't last that long. Hmm. So we will turn it into hand sanitizer because there's a massive shortage. Nobody can get it. We use the cash that we had to buy the bottles we could get our hands on, which are these ugly little bottles. I still have some of them. These ugly little pump bottles are like multiple colors. And we made a big batch of sanitizer with what we had we filled those bottles and we gave them away and you know considering what would happen a couple months later ironically the first place that we gave them to was the plymouth police department Hmm. Um, but then meals on wheels and different homeless shelters and everybody else came along and and we were just you know yeah whatever come take it so because if we're gonna go down you might as well use it for something i mean what good is this gonna be for anybody after we're gone that's, it's amazing that you were able to see that and still think in such a community-minded way as you're looking at your business falling apart. Yeah, well, I mean, yes, looking back on it and, you know, I can see that. But I also know that at the time, it was kind of a lost cause. I mean, I, I had been watching a more reasonable person would have shut Denor down years before that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just kept you know, I'm stubborn. I don't like to admit defeat. Um, and so I was just hanging on and it was so sure we could figure something out and we're just going to keep fighting for it. But by that point, you know, it looked like, look, we're going down. So, you know, it, it, then it's not that hard when you're, you're like, well, one way or the other, we're, we're not going to be here. Right. So what's the thing that we can do that's actually useful with what we've got? So when we got to May of 2020, you were still in the hand sanitizer business? You were still making and giving away hand sanitizer? We were making and giving it away, but we were also selling it. 
and and this is this is again one of those uh whenever we took a step towards the community good things happened right that decision to make and give away the hand sanitizer you know there was some press around that people saw that and said hey those guys can produce hand sanitizer we need it um and that led to a massive effort between us and Tattersall to produce industrial quantities of hand sanitizer for, you know, large businesses. Um, we didn't we didn't do any direct to consumer sales because we didn't want that interaction with our staff. But you know, we supplied the U.S. Postal Service, right? Um, and it was because people had found out that we could do this. We had no intention of turning it into a longer business. In fact. Uh, which will never, this will never, of course, come to light. But we originally tried to propose to the state of Minnesota that we would just make it at cost for the state of Minnesota. Hmm. With no market. But at the time, a gallon of, of hand sanitizer is going for over $100. Wow. And we figured we could make it for about 10 And so we made a proposal to the state of Minnesota to say, we'll make it for you and you distribute it because you know where it needs to go. And that didn't end up going anywhere, but because we had worked on creating the process to do that, and we had assumed that they would go for it, we had already bought all of the uh, inputs that we needed. So then we said, well, we've got these inputs. We've got to do something with them. We made the sanitizer to sell it, to buy ourselves more time for the state to, to buy. Huh, wow. Um, and the state never bit, but we kept selling it. And then we were like, well, now we can produce it in industrial quantities. We have tanker trucks coming to our facility you know, pushing out tens of thousands of gallons of hand sanitizer. And that ended up being the thing that saved Dunord through 2020. Amazing. Are you still making hand sanitizer? We are not. And we are happy to be out of that business. We <laughs> wanted to get back to making uh, spirits as soon as we could. I want to talk about getting back to spirits, but first we have to talk about what happened in Minneapolis uh, in the end of May. So you're sort of you're you're finding a, a path forward, but things are already stressful. You think your business is about to end, and then it seems like the city is on fire, and you at Denord are in the middle of that. After the murder of George Floyd and the civil unrest that broke out, you were you were right there at the at the at the epicenter. Can you talk about what that was like and what happened? Yeah, I mean, I I think anyone in Anyone who lives in Minneapolis and, and got to see this unfold understand, I, I, I feel like we all have a PTSD from that time period. Um, when he, but when he was murdered, uh, it didn't really, I mean, <laughs> we, we see that all the time, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, for a, for a black man to be murdered by the Minneapolis police or by a police department, it's not exactly a shock. Right. And so I went to that first. Um, so he was murdered on a Monday. Tuesday, there was a kind of a gathering at, at the intersection where he was killed. And I went to that. And, you know, the the protest was both uplifting and very depressing. Uplifting in the sense that um, it was everybody. I mean, everybody in the Twin Cities were there, represented at least in in some proportional way. I mean, black, white, every race, uh, everyone was there, and it was so good to see everyone expressing, you know, their grief and anger over this senseless killing. 
but it was depressing because the chants were all the same. When Rodney King was beaten, uh, I remember marching as a kid and being upset that I was in that march. I didn't understand why I was there, but it was there because my, my biological mother wanted to go. And everyone's chanting, no justice, no peace, prosecute the police. Well, here we were some 30 years later, hmm. and it's the same chant, no justice, no peace, prosecute the police. It's like, yeah, I don't know that the chant worked, right? Like, I, we're, we're, this is, have, have things gotten any better? Right? In many ways, no, right? We're, we paper over some things, but, but we hadn't really made the kind of progress that we would need to make for his life to be valued. Now, George Floyd was a large black man. I am too. Um, and I'm also the father of three little boys who, by virtue of their father, will be seen as black men, even though their mother is white. Um, and they're going to be big guys, too. So, you know, it was that was for all of the other killings. I never looked at it through that dad lens mm-hmm. and looking at it through that lens um, got me much more upset and riled up and and scared. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, we. When that protest moved and they said they were going to the third precinct, I mean, I third precincts on the same block as the North. And so I had a, I had a little red uh, Volkswagen and I jumped in that and uh, went back and I saw Maria, my production manager. I said, Hey, we got to get, get our tent up. Let's get some hand sanitizer out and let's go buy whatever water we can get at target. And we set up our tent um, by uh, uh, Patrick's cabaret. It used to be Patrick's cabaret. Now it's called hook and ladder. And because it's still a pandemic. I mean, so we right. were giving out hand sanitizer and water. Um, and so we were there that first day. We were there the next couple of days, although we stopped bringing the tent because we got tear gassed hmm. uh, and two days in a row. And uh, yeah, I mean, we were we were very much in the middle of it. And I think that at that point, we weren't having that much different of experience than, than anyone else who was going out to those protests. Um, what changed, though? was when we were in, you know, Wednesday and we we started to see what the crowd was turning into. Yeah. Um, and that sanitizer operation that I mentioned before requires us to have significant quantities of 190 proof alcohol mm-hmm. on hand. And at the time, we had about 25,000 liters of it, and which is in plastic totes or 1000 liter totes. And it basically is a mountain of very flammable. I mean, that's, you could run your car off of that. Yeah. Right? It, it burns very easily. And we put two and two together and realized that we were sitting on a bomb and we started hauling that stuff out of there as fast as we could. We had a, we got a warehouse in St. Paul and tried to fill it up. We almost got it all out. Um, not all of it, but most of it got out. And I'm very thankful that we did, because if that had been in there, then as we would later find out, lives would have been lost in that building. Were you surprised by the way things turned and the, and the speed at which this, you know, protest or, or demonstration changed into something else? I was. I think we all were. I, I don't think anybody thought it was going to go where it did. Um, but it if you would have asked me on Tuesday of that week, if that would have happened, I would have told you absolutely not. There's no question about it. If you asked me on Wednesday, I said there was a chance. And by Thursday, I was 100% certain mm-hmm. because we saw that the crowd change. And it's, it's one of the things that people have to understand. If you weren't out there, if you didn't go there, then you have to recognize that there were two different things happening. And I know people have different opinions about this. They'd be mad at me for saying it. But there were two different things happening. 
there was a protest and then there was a party Mm. and the protest right was on that that first day the people who were protecting the police station were the protesters they because there were people coming up trying to break windows and it was the protesters who were chasing them away and i watched a couple of guys some aim guys american indian movement guys chase off people and basically say if you want to mess with the police department you're gonna have to go through me now these aren't people who have a lot of love loss you know like who love the the minneapolis police department but the message was not going to be we're here to wreck stuff it was we're protesting this murder and we want you to focus on that so that was one group but as the time went on and we started seeing license plates from every state in the in the country start to show up right that's when it changed and on thursday there were thousands of people, right? Well, there were probably several hundred people in the parking lot of, of Target, which was across the street from the third precinct. And they were burning cars. I mean, all kinds of Target had been looted by that point. They were on the roof of Target, you know, jumping around, people still pulling some of the stuff out of there. And, and at the same time, across the street, there's a protest going on. People on, on megaphones giving messages, right? The police occasionally taking a shot into the crowd, almost as if to rile them up. And I know people say that nobody believes it. I stood there and I watched it. Hmm. Like I watched people close to me get hit by rubber bullets randomly, right? Not to take any ground, but just they would occasionally take a shot. Um, and that was the night that we had a protest. And so that's when we knew we're like that protest is going to make this thing explode or not protest. That's the night we had a curfew. So when the curfew was instituted, the protesters went home. And they were the only thing keeping it from going crazy. Hmm. And so eight o'clock hits, the protesters go home and the city catches fire. Yeah. And it, and that that was and then it was straight up anarchy. There was I mean, my apartment, my apartment's on Lake Street. So I watched this. I the you know, I didn't sleep for that week because the building across from me was set on fire every night that week. Right. Yeah. The liquor store next to me it was looted every night of that entire week. Right? I mean, it, there was you couldn't call anyone. Right. The fire department eventually showed up. It was our fire department protected by the St. Paul police. Right? And they would do this every single night. Like it, it was it was anarchy. I never thought I would see anything like that. The day after that, our building was set on fire. My apartment building was set on fire. Mm. Uh, and so I woke up 2 a.m. in the morning and all the alarms are going off and there's smoke everywhere. And so that convinced me that maybe I should not be there anymore. And uh, that was place was uninhabitable then anyway. So then I left and I was staying in a hotel in Bloomington. What, uh, when everything finally settled down, um, what were you left with? What, what was left of Dunord? You know, Dunord did much better than most places. And um, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, we have, Dunord split in two. So there is, and now it still is, now it's just a little different. At the time it was split in two because we had our original distillery and then across the parking lot, we had our warehouse. And the original distillery and cocktail room has a ton of windows. It has glass roll-up doors. You can see right into it. it there was, people are gonna break into that real easy and they're gonna trash it. And we, we were pretty certain of that. So we moved things from there into our warehouse, which has no windows, right? Thinking that that was a safe place for it to be. And on that day, so on Thursday, you know, I told the staff, you know, don't be anywhere around here. Like, it's, whatever is in there, it ain't worth your life. And we have a real risk of people losing their lives. There were, the police were still there. They hadn't given up yet, although that's the day they told us that they had no plan, uh, in those words. Um, 
but we told them if this building catches fire, don't go in. It's a distillery. Um, there's high proof alcohol. Like it's not safe. You told uh, the police that. We told the police that. Yeah. Um, and relate that to the fire department. Like you, you can't save this building. It's not going to be worth it. And someone's going to get hurt or killed if they try to. Um, and we kind of figured that was that. So we left. I went back to my apartment this is Thursday night and I came back. Uh, because I realized there were probably some things like our license and other things that I should probably pick up. Well, kind of against my wishes, our production manager, Maria, had decided, um, her and her girlfriend decided to come back. And they wanted to put up Black-owned signs. And they wanted to put them up in the windows of the original distillery. And they did. They, like, wallpapered. I mean, every single window, every piece of glass had a sign in it saying, this is a Black-owned business. And how did you, you know, feel about that? Um, well, I thought it was kind of risky <laughs> and, you know, we're in the tear gas, rubber bullets and fire, right? Like this, this is not a safe place to be. Yeah. Uh, and they came biking through that to, to do this work, right. To save this business, to try to save this business. They were doing more to save it than I felt like I was doing to save it. Um, and at the time I kind of questioned whether or not this would matter and whether or not it was worth the risk. Um, in the end, people did break into the warehouse, and from the warehouse, you can't see the other side. Uh, about we know at least five separate fires were set in the building, uh, all in in our side of it, and they certainly were trying to take the building down. Some of those totes that I mentioned before, they tried to turn into big Molotovs, uh, had rags in them, and set the rags on fire. Um, set the um, we had hand sanitizer still in there, which is still high proof, and they they set those on fire, um, but they must have come out of there once the sprinklers kicked on and that's they decided that they didn't want to be wet and no one touched a single thing hmm. on the distillery side not a single window it's one of the few buildings that had any windows left yeah. in that entire area it was not a single thing so it had that had they not done that i think we would have lost the entire thing but what we ended up losing was everything we had moved over to what we thought was the safe side um, There's about 30 to 40,000 gallons of water that came down, um, and most of the damage was from uh, water damage. But because, you know, you've got alcohol, you've got hand sanitizer, it burned all night. It burned from 2 a.m. in the morning until I got there at 6 a.m. because there was a curfew, and I wasn't going to break curfew. Again, large black man, not going to catch a bullet for this. So I had to wait, right? I had to wait four hours until I could leave and go check it out when I got there. It was still burning. Um, and, you know, I kind of waded through water, kicking over these these jugs of sanitizer. So we had to get all those out before we could turn the, the sprinklers off. We didn't, the building did not go down. The sprinkler system saved it. Mm -hmm. uh, and the original distillery, so our original stills, all of that, none of that was touched. I can't even imagine here. Here you are, someone, and I don't know that everybody necessarily knew that you'd been thinking about and facing the fact that this you might need to close this business for a long time. But I'm guessing in your wildest dreams, you couldn't have imagined this scenario or that you'd be standing in a flood with fire and with, you know, all the craziness that was going on around you. Oh, no, never, never in a million years. Um, but. As bad as that looked, I knew that, 
like I knew that Rahel Islam had lost his entire business, mm -hmm. right? That Gandhi Mahal had been burned to the ground. I knew that, um, you know, Town Talk Diner, this historic, you yeah. know, play, was gone, 100% gone. Um, whatever damage was done to us paled in comparison to some of the things that happened in other spots along Lake Street. And we knew right then, when I got there, it was obviously, it's hard to see your baby burn. And, it, you know, it, I was kind of a mess at the time, but the, and actually it was Rahel who said, he, there was some posts, he said to somebody and he was like, look, it's just stuff, you know? And, and that was the thing that kind of got me out of my own gloom, despair and agony, you know, routine and thought, yeah, he's right. This is just stuff. And if I take a step back and look at it, we did a lot better than almost everybody else. And so we're still standing. We still have some assets. We still have some ability to do some things here. Like we can be a part of the next chapter, which we thought would start right away. It didn't. It took another day of anarchy, really. But we can be a part of the next chapter, which is how can we, you know, recover in this area and how can we do something for for people around here. But we also knew that we had insurance, and from working with a number of the other, particularly the BIPOC owners of businesses around the area and just you know anecdotally you run into folks like you know people don't have insurance mm -hmm. right i mean they're choosing between insurance or the inventory they need to buy to keep their business alive and by the way their business is supports their entire family right it's the whole workforce it's the only income and it's probably the home too right so we knew they didn't have insurance and so you you get you out of you know worrying about and moping about your own situation when you realize just how lucky you are and how bad this is for so yeah. many other. For you, though, it was a renewed commitment, um, not only to Lake Street, but to to rebuilding your business. From a business point of view, how did you see that happening? Did, did you see new opportunity? What, what was going to be different? If, even if you recovered and recouped your losses, what was going to be different about your distillery? Well, that took a little bit of, of time. Um, because the, the business side of it, we knew what we needed to do on the community side. And we knew that my wife, uh, you know, got kid care for our kids and flew up. She was in California. She flew back, um, cause she had to navigate me out of Minneapolis on Saturday hmm. night, uh, when my place was on fire, but she flew back and in a hotel room, we had the three tenants that we knew we needed for the foundation. That part was easy. Figuring out what the business was going to do whole different deal. I mean, really nobody was thinking about it. Like there's in that moment, there was no way to chart a path out within a couple of weeks, uh, Delta airlines reached out. Um, and I missed it. Right. Um, they actually had to reach out three times before they finally reached me. So they cold called you. They, they Delta airlines yeah. suddenly is calling you Chris Montana at do Nord spirits. Yeah. And they had um, they had seen it. Uh, we were in some um, 40 under 40 thing that included me in there and they saw that and they just wanted to talk about whether or not like, we could do something. And, and yeah, I, I just, you know, I'm not the greatest at email anyway. People who know me know that. Um, but I just missed, you know, and I think there was a phone call. Somebody connected us and I just kept missing it because we were trying to run this food bank and all this other stuff. Um, but the, the, the actual commercial path out started to gel um as you know one conversations like that were happening 
And and what um, did they want? Because it's it's just been announced in in recent weeks publicly what you're doing. But but what yeah, what was their what was Delta Airlines pitch to you? Well, they at that time they were they were kind of exploring. My guess is I'm not the only person that they called, but um, they were uh, just looking for a, a new supplier. Um, and they were looking at their vodka program and thinking about, you know, we want a domestic supplier. And so just wanted to pick my brain to see if it was something that we could do. And, you know, I told them we don't have any capacity, like we can't do anything right now. Right. I mean, we hardly have a distillery. It's a distillery <laughs> in name only. Um, is it an opportunity we'd love to jump on? It's like, sure, but but we're not there. And they made it clear that they understood that this was going to be a special deal, that they're that we weren't just going to be able to turn the spigot on and that they wanted to work with us to make it happen. Um, I didn't really believe that that was going to happen. Um, and so, but, you know, you, you entertain the conversation. Uh, and, but as we kept going deeper and deeper into this, it became very clear that they were serious. Uh, I also want to, to make a point that we had, we could, we had the mental space to think about some of these things because again, our community near and far showed up for us. Uh, distillers from across the country raised about a hundred grand um, and sent it directly to us wow. to try to help us out. And there were another, there was another GoFundMe that got started that raised about $10,000. Again, no one told us they were doing this. They mm -hmm. just said, Hey, we've got these things. Amazing. Uh, which was the impetus when we saw all that money getting raised. We're like, that's why we need to start our own GoFundMe because we knew that we had insurance. And while we didn't need the money, um, there were other people, we knew other people needed it more. And so we started our own GoFundMe, which raised over a million dollars. Well, not over, but just about a million dollars. And, you know, so that was all happening in there. But we had people showing up for us. And I've, I've had never felt more supported in the days after the fire. I had never felt more supported. My general understanding of what business should do is be at least as good as a good neighbor. Yeah. Right. And that good neighbor, you know, doesn't just take the cup of sugar. They also give it. Right. And so if the community's hurting, you're hurting with them. If the community's doing well, you're doing well with them. And we were hurting and the community came and helped us out. We have a debt to pay, and I think we're always going to have that debt to pay because Denord shouldn't exist today. There's so many times that people have come along and helped us and intervened and given us that little boost that it took to get over the whatever the hump was. And so we're going to be paying that back as long as we're a going concern. And I think that's right. I think that's the way it should be. I think that, you know, we... That, that's how businesses should operate. Amazing. Um, pretty quickly after George Floyd's death, we saw a, a pretty significant response from not just from the community, the grassroots level like you're talking about, but from big businesses too. Target, mm -hmm. U.S. Bank, Best Buy, all these companies in the Twin Cities. And then as we saw it kind of spread across the nation, but making these really major commitments and whether it's about hiring changes and inclusivity and working with BIPOC vendors. Obviously, you were one of the first calls. Um, what did you think about that? And you, you've been black all your life. You've seen, you've seen how this plays out in business. Did you believe it? Did you see this as we are, we are at a moment of true change? Um, then I didn't believe it. I don't think anybody did. Uh, because you know, talk is cheapest when the story's good. And so, you know, yeah, people are going to say, we want to support, this shouldn't happen, what an injustice. 
Um, but we've heard that before, right? Uh, but something was different this time around. And this, and I, uh, this is part of why I, I think, you know, if our society has these three legs, right? Business, government, and the people, um, you need all three of them to be moving in the, in the right direction to get anything done. And business stepped out ahead of government and some of the people yep. and said, yeah, there's something wrong here. There's something fundamentally wrong here. And for people who don't know, who, who looked at what happened in Minneapolis and Lake Street and North Minneapolis and in St. Paul and say, I can't understand why those people would go and do that thing. That's kind of the point. Like if you had to ask yourself, how bad would it have to be for you to go do that? Assuming mm -hmm. that other people are as smart and rational as you are, how bad would it have to be for you to go do that? And if things are that bad, then there's something fundamentally wrong in our country. And that needs to be addressed. So the business community stepping up and admitting to that and making commitments, some of which have been realized, some of which probably have not been yet. But, you know, the idea that I could turn on the TV and see Black Lives Matter on the side of an NBA game on the, on the court. Right. And, and at Target Field and for people to be recognizing that this is a thing and something we need to work on was amazing. Absolutely amazing. I mean, I, it's I didn't think that in this generation, I didn't expect that I would live to see that. I thought that would probably be where my kids got it. Right. That maybe we'd reach that point then. Uh, but we skipped a generation hmm. and it shouldn't have taken a man being murdered to do it. Um, but I think it did. And it, and it had to be that moment. And maybe it was a, the confluence of COVID and, and everything else. But but no, I think the business community has stepped up in a tremendous way and probably doesn't get I, I know that there is a lot of a blowback for that, too. Not everybody wants to see that. Not everybody thinks that those types of messages should be uh, promoted by the business community. Um, and, and I and I understand that because it's not everyone's experience. but somebody has to lead and somebody has to do the uncomfortable thing and i think the business community uh, did a lot of that and i have a lot of respect for those business leaders so you did find a way to partner with delta airlines how long did it take to figure that out when did do nord spirits get back to the business of making craft spirits you know by the end of that year we were we were producing a little bit and we you know now with this this kind of the prospect or specter of uh, Delta hovering around. Uh, we also, you know, we had, there were other companies that were reaching out too, other large retailers that were reaching out. You know, we had conversations with Walmart, with Total Wine with, you know, and so we saw that there was, you know, there was, there was an energy and people wanted to support. Um, and so we, we started to be able to understand a path forward. To make Delta work though, is a, that, that is a Herculean lift. You know, to put it in perspective, we in the in this industry, we measure things in proof gallons. A proof gallon is a gallon that is half alcohol, right? And it's the way we standardize things out. Um, Denord Craft Spirits was about a 5,000 proof gallon operation uh, for the several years leading up to this point. So our first order with Delta was more proof gallonage than we had produced in the preceding existence of the company, hmm. right? That was in a month. Uh, to, for that to work, we needed partners. We had to change some of the ways that we did things, where we source things, how we source things. Um, but we also had no capacity to bottle at that level. And 
we had been given a, uh, a forecast by them that ended up being about uh, off by, by a factor of two. Um, and so we had spent some time and gone out and purchased some equipment, you know, got the credit for it, said, hey, just believe us, we've got this order coming, it's going to work out. Uh, and then it was immediately obsolete as soon as we got that revised projection because there was no way there aren't enough hours in a day we would never never be able to to get it done and we went to to jack daniels because we had been working with jack daniels in this nearest and jack initiative uh since the middle of 2020 middle to late 2020 and they had been helping us through a rebrand um, and also just trying to navigate the mess that was 2020 and try to get back on our feet. And so we had their top executives, you know, that we could call and we met with him weekly. Did so you we know them? Support. Did you know no. them? Pre they just reached out to help. No, I was on a, uh, I was on a kind of a, a little podcast where people were talking about our foundation and, and what had happened. Uh, and uh, some of the executives from uh, Brown Foreman and Jack Daniels were on it. Also Fawn Weaver from Uncle Nearest. And, you know, somebody asked me, well, how can we make this better? And I said, well, for years, I've been trying to get a program together through the American Craft Spirits Association that would get people into this industry because I, I'm kind of sick of being the black distiller. And right? I always just wanted to be Chris. If you, if you followed our company at all, we never talked about the fact that it was black owned yeah. company because who cares, right? Mm -hmm. so apparently, lots of people care. And I understand and I've, I've moved around to that point and, I, and you can't. You can't expect people to see themselves being a distiller when you won't tell people that you are one. So why is that little black boy or girl going to believe they can do it when they can't see anyone doing it? So, mm -hmm. so yes, we had to come out of our shell a little bit, but I never, but I want to get past that. I want it to be irrelevant, but the only way to do that is to get more people into the industry. Well, it took about a week for them with that message to say, well, we'll just do it. And then there's a $5 million commitment between Brown Foreman, which owns Jack Daniels and uncle nearest to create this initiative and help uh, you know, the existing black distillers and try to create more of them. And there's a very short list of black distillers. And so they came to me and said, do you want, do you want to work with us? I said, sure. Uh, and so we would, had been working with them and we went to them and said, we can't do this. Is there anything you guys can do? And they said, yeah, we got you. Wow. And but for that, but for that partnership and the team at Jack Daniels uh, has been absolutely amazing to work with. And having visited that facility and watch our bottles come off their line at, you know, about 450 a minute um, is insane. Hmm. It truly is. But we would, we'd never would have been able to pull this off without support from them, which, again, is another time that yeah. someone has reached out and, and lifted us up. Isn't that amazing? So is this the, the, the ticket to, to take off literally and, and figuratively for <laughs> Do Nord Spirits? Well, I think we have a lot of work to do. Uh, I don't think that on the back of of these little bottles, we can say, well, the work is done and everything's going to take off from there. I made that mistake once already. I, when I started the business, I thought, well, if it's good, then people will buy it. I didn't know I was in the spirits selling industry, not the spirits making industry so much. Hmm. Uh, so we know we've got a lot of work to do. But one of the things that we've done is we've added some people to the team. We're still a very lean company. I mean, there's nine of us, right? Um, but we have a, a leadership team, which is six awesome women who have taken this tiny little thing and put it on a platform that now can start to look at a future where, you know, we, we can produce all of these spirits. We can, you know, really grow this company and be a national company. There's going to be, you know, over 
you know, somewhere between five and 12 million times, our logo is going to land on a, in front of somebody. Yep. And they're going to say, who the heck is that? We couldn't ask for that kind of marketing. We certainly couldn't pay for it. So that's a huge opportunity. It also is a, a huge challenge. How do you grow a tiny, tiny, tiny little company into a national spirits company and brand um, when you don't have all that capital? And we're a 100% family-owned company. Mm-hmm. There are no investors at Nordcraft Spirits and never have been. Um, and I, I kind of like that, right? It's just my wife and I. If I've got to fight through anything, I've got to do it at home, right? But um, So there are some challenges in there. Uh, but but I'd be you know lying to you if I just, if I said that uh, that this wasn't going to be uh, you know a huge boost to us and, and to our business. It's been quite a, a year and a half, and and even longer than that for you and trying to figure this out. Have you had any moments yet to just kind of sit back, take a deep breath, and reflect on where you are and everything that's happened, and and how do you kind of put that into context for yourself and for what you want as a business person and as a leader? Um, probably not. No, I don't, I don't know that we've, we've had that moment. I have, you know, the staff will occasionally be like, Hey, Chris, like slow down, man. Like recognize that something cool is happening here. And, and they're right, you know, and, and it is, and it's, I think there will, there will come that time, but we're so still in it uh and and battling through some of these challenges i mean we're a manufacturing business which means that the more business you have the less money you have right and mm-hmm. so it's you know we we still have challenges and we still have to fight through those things and so that the daily grind is still very much there and at the same time we're we're also running a foundation and that foundation is running a a food shelf and you know there's a budget there and we need to make sure we're supporting that and we also have a commitment to incubating BIPOC-owned businesses in the food and beverage sector, and putting meat on those bones is very important to me. So we have that job to do. So hmm. I think we're, we have so much going on that we don't really have, we haven't really taken the time to enjoy where we're at, but that has also been the therapy that's kept us going through some of the harder times in the past year and a half, is it? You just got to do the next thing, mm-hmm. right? You just got to keep going and going and going. Uh, I will say that, you know, my work-life balance, as we have added more people in, has gotten a lot better. And, you know, I've got a, a, it's a soft rule now, but I try to keep to it that, you know, I, between two and three o'clock, I spend with my kids and from five o'clock until they go to bed, I spend with my kids. And I wasn't always like that. And as we've grown and added more people in, you know, nine might seem small to the people listening to this podcast, but it's a heck of a lot better than, you know, three, which is where we were at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so that part is, has made things a lot easier for me and and there will be time for reflection in there. The number of DEI executives at big companies has like quadrupled in the last year. Um, and the ones that were doing the work maybe just have a, a, a bigger platform now and a bigger spotlight on them. Um, what advice would you give them? as big companies are thinking through, you know, I think there's a real conversation around not recruiting to men. Well, recruiting has become a bigger challenge, but, but it's the retention piece of it. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think every DEI officer uh, position, the mindset always has to be to work yourself out of a job, right? Um, we don't want to have DEI positions in any company, right? We want to, the, 
we want for the society and the company to already understand the value there. So we don't need somebody else there to tell us about it. Um, but, you know, I think you have to dig a little bit deeper. There has been, I think that the commitment to diversity in many, and not everyone, but, you know, generally has been, we're going to try to diversify um, on the surface. Meaning we're going to post, you know, people will say, well, I couldn't find somebody. Right? I couldn't find somebody to fill the position. And we, we, we posted it in the spokesman recorder. We, we, we put it, you know, on KMOJ. We, we put it in all these areas where we expected brown people to see it and we didn't get the applicants, right? Or we didn't get the qualified applicants. And therefore, our hands were tied. We had to move on. Um, that's not nothing. But you could have guessed that that was going to happen. Right. So we took the, you know, take Denord as an example. Before all of this happens, this goes all the way back to when we first started hiring people. Right. The idea with Denord was we looked around and we saw that there wasn't much diversity in the industry. So we said, all right, fine, then we're going to do it in our shop. So we're going to open the door. But what that meant is we had to hire people who didn't know everything already. Because if that's who we were looking for, if we were going to say, well, the qualifications is you've been in the industry for a couple of years, we already know they're not in the industry. So yeah, we could do the same thing. Well, we tried, but we couldn't get anybody. It's like, that's not enough. You have to dig a little deeper. You have to work a little harder. So we would bring people in who didn't have all the skills, but they were good people who wanted to work hard, who we felt like we wanted to bring into the family. It's a family-owned business. And then we would build their skills up. And that was the only way that, that we were going to get anywhere. There aren't that many women in decision-making positions in, in the industry, right? There are more now, and they're coming along but nowhere near the 50% that they, that they should be, right? Our staff, uh, while our leadership team is 100% female, if you take me out of it, hmm. right? But that's not because we only hire women. It's because we put a flag out and said, we want you. It's not that we're going to tolerate you. We want you. This is the place where you can be, right? Same thing with, you know, we're, we're what, 44% people of color at, at Denard, right? And again, it's because we put the flag out. We said, we want you to be here and we'll take that extra step. When Delta decided that they wanted to diversify their supply chain, if they simply would have said, we, we're going to put out you know, an RFP and see if there's anyone who can supply Delta, they would have known the answer as right. soon as they did. They had to do something more. They had to take that extra step to say, we're going to work with you to get you to the point because you got to prime the pump somehow. Mm -hmm. Now, the hope is, that if you create, if if a Denord Craft Spirits can do this, right, and then and we are, you know, hopefully a force for diversification within the industry, that we then will spawn. Hopefully, I I hope people leave Denord and go start their own thing, right, and do the same thing. I hope that our model gets stolen, right, and people go do this, and that can kind of get the ball rolling, so that way we can get to that eventual future where those DEI jobs all go away. Not mm -hmm. that I'm trying to get rid of anybody's jobs, but I'm trying to get rid of those jobs. I I do want to just ask because obviously the the, the struggles are are not over the problems are not solved I think what's exciting is to see that business that this topic is not going away businesses are continuing to to ask and think about you know how can we make change what do we need to do for our own companies and for the city and for BIPOC owned businesses um, your home base is actually not in Minneapolis, you and your family and your kids, you're in New Orleans. Um, why and what do you, when you think about this community and what the challenges are here and how it's different perhaps in Minnesota than other parts of the country, what, what would you say? How do we move forward? 
Well, the why as to why we aren't there is uh, is a, a layered thing. Um, my wife, who does utility scale renewable energy development, so like big wind farms and solar farms, got an opportunity that required her to be located in California, in Orange County. And so we moved at the beginning of 2020 uh, to California. And then a pandemic hit, and she decided she didn't like California. I didn't mind it. Um, and she would have rather moved us back to Minnesota. Uh, but I was the reason why we didn't move back to Minnesota. And, you know, so we ended up in New Orleans, and we ended up in New Orleans because we kind of crossed off the two. If I was voting for California, she was voting for Minnesota, we cross those off and we pick a place that's neutral that we both like. And who doesn't like New Orleans? And so we moved, we moved out to New Orleans, bought a house, moved out to New Orleans. We moved into a house she'd never seen before. But the reason why I, you know, I, my vote was not for Minnesota is going back, you know, my job number one for me is, is being a dad and raising my kids and having grown up in Minnesota and seen there, there, every community has the good and the bad, but when it comes to race relations, Minnesota simply doesn't have the the infrastructure, the social infrastructure to talk about and deal with these things. And so progress is slow at hand. And while I grew up in that environment, um, but I, I don't want, you know, I want to give the best I possibly can to my kids. And having lived, I've lived in multiple different places now in New Orleans. I used to live in D.C. I've lived in Indiana. I've lived in California. Um, and in many of those places, the people just seem to have a, a, they can handle a conversation about race head on. And that is something that I found Minnesotans have a really hard time doing. You know, the, the back end of Minnesota nice is essentially we're not going to do anything too controversial. So that way we can always have this general level of, of, you know, I don't know if cordiality is a word we're going to say it is. Mm -hmm. um, and that's all well and good. And it means that if somebody drives by you and you're you're stuck in the snow, they're going to stop. They're going to pull you out. And that doesn't happen in every state. Um, but when you get to that next level, that next level of talking to somebody who isn't like you and, you know, might think differently than you, uh, that's where we fall down. And I want to be a part of changing that. We've always had that approach at the Nord. That we don't exclude anybody. We wanted to have, you know, our. As you can imagine, our clientele is, is left-leaning, um, but you know, and so am I. But no one group of people have ever had all the right answers, and so we wanted to have debates and conversations at our facility where we brought in the Trump voters and the Hillary voters and and had those conversations and in a respectful way. We want to be a part of that conversation, and we also want to be a part of that conversation when it comes to race relations and you know and working towards you know real attainable social justice goals um and i'll do that and i have a commitment to that's that's the community that raised me and i'm not gonna i'm not walking away from it but if i have to choose the kind of environment that my kids are going to grow up in i want them to grow up in an area where they can they where they can have these conversations and where them walking into we're, we're in louisiana now we're in the deep south and in the deep south my kids stand out less they can go all because people are used to seeing them they're used to talking to them when i go i like to i like to you know i would go hunting in minnesota i like to go camping i get out of the city wherever i go i'm looked at like i'm an alien hmm. 
right? Like, why is he here? And, you know, if you haven't had that experience, you, you won't understand it, right? Um, but just suffice to say, it's, it's, it's as if you had a, a neon sign on top of your head that, that said, I don't belong. Yeah. And no one wants to feel that. And it, it really makes it so that way you're, you're looking at, okay, well, as long as we stay in the Twin Cities, we're going to be okay. But that's not the way that it should be. No. So I wanted them to be in an area where they could feel comfortable wherever they're going. And believe it or not, it is much more comfortable for me as, as, a, as a black man and as a father of, of you know, three. It's much more comfortable in the Deep South uh, than it is in Minneapolis. Hmm. So wow. Wow. That's, that's why I voted against Minnesota. Yeah. And I voted against it for my kids and I will work for it because that's that that was home. Mm -hmm. Right. And it always will be for me. And people ask, well, are you going to move to Nord? I don't have an interest in moving to Nord. I think the Nord has work to do in the community there. And I am committed to that. We are committed to putting um, our business incubation project in uh, Minnesota, hopefully in North Minneapolis. Um, and yeah, so we're going to work on the issues, but I'm I'm not going to have my kids have to fight through that. Well, I guess we'll know that we've made progress if your kids, when they're deciding where they want to start their businesses or careers, feel like that could happen here and they could be comfortable. I would love to see that. I would love to see that because I love Minnesota. I walk around here with my twins hat on and nobody understands it. They don't know <laughs> what that's all about. Well, way you know, to I say love, true I'm to a your cold team. weather guy. Right? <laughs> um, so the heat down here is, is tough for me. But, but yeah, I would love to see that, that yeah. future. And that's why we're working towards it. Yeah. Well, thank you, Chris, for all the work you're doing. It's an amazing story, and I know it's still evolving. So, Well, thank you for having me. This has been a pleasure. This is a fun chat. Well, what a story. I mean, so much to process from Chris Montana and just what a ray of, of hope and, and optimism and um, what, a, what an amazing person to have in our community. I think a common theme in, in all of the various chapters of Chris Montana's life and career is this theme of overcoming barriers. And to, to dig in a little more on that, let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business, where Nikisha Lewis is Associate Professor and Associate Dean of Undergraduate and Accelerated Master's Programs and Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Ambassador. Nikisha, thank you so much for joining us. So happy to be here. So there's there's something that that comes up frequently um, in in some recent interviews, Chris Montana's included, and that is this idea of being the first. And it pains me every time in 2021 that we're telling a story of a first because a person was black, a person of color. Um, I'm curious how you process those firsts, and is it something we should be celebrating and saying, isn't it great that Chris Montana has, you know, made inroads into this um, business of distilling that not a lot of people of color had been in? Or should we really be digging a little deeper and asking why in the world is he the first? You know, I think it's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B for sure. As I reflect on some of the words of Tawana Black, uh, this year's Person of the Year by TCB, I really think it's it's a moment of both pride, but also a moment of pain as we think about it. And so going back to what you asked me about, you know, we should be celebrating. Absolutely. That's the pride. That's this moment that causes us to stop and pause and say why. And leaning more into that, understanding that being the first shouldn't be the only. 
And so as we reflect on that, organizations, companies, industries, we really need to take a look at our systems and what's going on to see why are we in 2021 and this is becoming a first. What barriers are there that exist that our systems have put in place to cause this to happen? And what can we do to make a more inclusive culture all around as we do business? Right, right. Absolutely. Um, And of course, Chris, um, it's so interesting how, you know, a lot of people would say, what? He he left a a lucrative, promising law career to jump into the booze business, as he says. (laughs) I know. I giggled just a bit about that. (laughs) Um, But but at the same time, it's because of the background he had that he was probably in a better position to push things forward and to create more opportunities for uh, the next generation of people to come up in the business. Absolutely. I thought that was an interesting take as well. I really think it's this idea or a way of thinking perspective that in his legal field allowed him to really look through the challenges that were in front of him and reflect and give some new perspective in that industry. And so it would be my thought, you know, as you're thinking about, you know, how does one overcome barriers to really look around you at your own experiences and those unique perspectives that you might have on some other space in your life and use that as a way to overcome some of those barriers. Right. You know, I speak to some of the industry and I say, as we're looking from an HR perspective, we frequently look, okay, do they have the right degree? Are they from the right industry? When the question should really be is, what unique perspective could they bring to this role or, or this talent or this business that could help us overcome a barrier that we couldn't get over without their thought processes? And so mm-hmm. he was able to do that, merely be by leveraging some experiences that he had had before and a way of thinking that caused him to be a bit more innovative in his approach. I think my favorite part of the Chris Montana story is the fact that time and again, he put others before his business, even though he was determined to get this business off the ground and it is a for-profit business and he wanted to succeed. He chose community. He chose other businesses that he knew had it a little bit worse than him. He wanted to help his neighbors. And ultimately, it is now paying off for Dunord. Would you agree, Nikisha? I absolutely agree. And more importantly, remind folks that as they are pursuing those profits, remembering that purpose and passion can be a way of leading to that. If we think about all the amazing things that are happening now for them, it's definitely because they leaned into serving first and then they got the profits. Wow. Yeah. Great, great takeaway. Nikisha, thank you so much for your perspective, as always. And thank you to our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you want to know more about the show, go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. And thanks again for listening to By All Means. To make by all means, and we've got some all stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Senior Media Relations Manager, Vanita Sakar, and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for all their help. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Hope you enjoyed By All Means.